0: Our scripture uh, for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. It says, When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So right now, we're in the season of Christmas. And I told a bunch of my friends lately that now is not the time to put down your Christmas decorations. Because Christmas is actually a season that lasts for 12 whole days, hence the song, uh, from Christmas on December 25th until Epiphany, which is on January 6th, which celebrates the day that the wise men came to bring gifts to Jesus. So my PSA is don't take down your Christmas lights and stuff because it's still Christmas. (laughs) Now that's out of the way. Uh, Christmas is a good time to look at the kind of joy that people had when Jesus was born. And the Gospel of Luke gives you a really good opportunity to do that. Because there are a whole bunch of characters with all different kinds of life situations that are pulled into the joy of the Christ child. This new kingdom that the baby Jesus was inaugurating wasn't just going to be for the rich or the poor, for men or for women, for the young or old, but it was going to be for everyone. When you read along, you see a teenage girl, old men and women, shepherds, carpenters, priests, and prophets. Whoever you are, you can find yourself in these first few chapters as everyone comes together in sync to rejoice at the birth of the long-awaited savior of the world. We can all find ourselves here and get a little secondhand taste of how it felt. You can't help but be drawn in by these characters. And that helps you to feel the joy of Christmas, all 12 days of it. Another thing that you'll notice happens a lot when you read really good literature is that often they'll tell you exactly what will happen in the rest of the story from the very beginning except they'll say it in such a way that you'll expect something a little bit different. Then you look back and read the beginning and think, huh, that really did end up happening, just in a different way from how I was expecting. I need to rethink what kind of perspective this story is giving me. It's honestly one of my favorite tropes in storytelling, and it's really useful to keep in mind when you're reading. You can see it clearly in stories like The Odyssey and Macbeth, Oedipus, The Book of Judges, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Star Wars. All of them have prophecies of some kind of thing that's meant to tell the future, which ends up coming true, but in the most unexpected and cool way. And that forces you to kind of re-examine the assumptions that you made before you read the rest of the book. In this passage, Luke is doing something really similar. He's telling you exactly what will happen in the rest of the book, but he's saying it in a little bit of a coded language that you don't quite understand until you read the the rest of the story. He's leading you to make predictions about how the prophecies will come true. And when you make those predictions, it not only makes a really interesting experience when you go back and read and think about whether your predictions were right, but it also makes you re-examine the assumptions that led you to make the predictions that were wrong. So let's think about what kind of predictions a normal reader from this time would have made based on the prophecies that Simeon and Anna gave. Luke says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and Anna was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Israel at this time was in a place of national shame. They were supposed to be the center of the world and the means by which God was going to set the world right. Uh, But instead, right now, they were in a shameful position. They were a backwater that has been a pain in the neck in a bunch of foreign empires for half a millennium. The Bible is pretty clear that the reason that this was happening was because Israel was suffering for the sins of all those years where, where they had sinned. This consolation of Israel is a pretty clear reference to what Isaiah had said centuries beforehand. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, that one day Israel's time out would be over, and God would return to his people and make Israel the center of the world again. But now, we look at what actually happened by the end of the book. It doesn't quite look like that. Everyone expected that the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem meant that Jerusalem was going to be a glorious and rich city, where everyone brings all their money and gold and wealth. It was going to be a lot like Rome, but even more glorious. That's not what really happened, though, is it? So how did this prediction really come true? Well, the consolation and redemption of Jerusalem really did come, but in a different way. Jerusalem became the center of the universe, because it was there that the most important event of all of human history happened. It was planned since before the foundation of the world that the Messiah would suffer to bring redemption for everyone. And it happened in Jerusalem. And from there, the kingdom of God spread out to all of creation, as the good news started with a couple of apostles holed up in Jerusalem and became a worldwide movement. That way, Jesus really became a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to Israel. Jerusalem became the epicenter of the Jesus movement. But that was achieved by the suffering of Jesus and his apostles and all of us Christians, not through fabulous wealth like other empires like Rome, Babylon, or Carthage. What that means is that Jesus' kingdom isn't interested in that kind of glory. What it means to be glorious in Jesus' kingdom is to give up yourself in love and sacrifice for somebody else, just like Jesus did. We expected wealth and power when the glory of Israel was revealed, but the true glory was the most glorious act of all time, when Jesus sacrificed himself in love for us and bid us to do the same. Simeon says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own heart also. And this would have made a lot of sense to anyone reading this at the time. Of course, the Messiah coming means that some people will fall and other people will rise. Some people are going to lose power, and other people are going to gain power. A new kingdom is coming in, that's just what happens. Clear out the old in with the new. And of course, plenty of people had their own visions for what it's going to look like when their enemies fall and when they elevate themselves. Most of the Jews, who were pretty poor peasants, would have loved to see the Romans who attached them and humiliated them finally get theirs. They also would have loved to see revenge against some of their own fellow Jews. Many of these common Jews thought that those in power, like the tax collectors, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, had sold out their brothers to kiss up to the Romans. These common Jews hated them the most. Instead, the way the prophecy actually came true was through a really interesting pun. The word for rising that Simeon uses here is most often used for resurrection. And the word for falling is sometimes used for death. As Christians, we are people whose old selves have died and who are called to die to ourselves to follow Jesus. But we are also raised or resurrected as a new kind of people, capable of following the example of Jesus and living in his kingdom. That's what happens in baptism. We descend symbolically to death in the water and rise out of the water to new life, just like Jesus did. At our first reading, it would be natural to think that those that are falling and those that are rising are completely different people. Like the first Jews, we probably would have a whole list, with one column being the people that we want to see fall, and the other column being the people we want to see rise. It makes sense that when the Messiah comes, some people will rise and other people will fall, Right? But with the gift of hindsight, we know that those that fall and those that rise in the new kingdom of Messiah are the same people. If we want to be a part of this kingdom, we have to fall, humbling ourselves and putting to death our old self, if we are joined to rise, being resurrected to a completely different kind of life, which will culminate when Jesus comes again. That's a little less satisfying to our lizard brain urges, isn't it? It basically says that there are plenty of things that we need to clean up within ourselves before we start looking out for vengeance against others. We want to be able to put ourselves in the position of perfectly righteous anger. Because that really feels good. (laughs) We want everything around us to change so that life gets better for us without having to go through the suffering of change. But Jesus' kingdom says that all of us are infected with the sin that makes it so so clear that the world is broken. We can't simply hope that we and the people we like will rise and those that we don't like will fall, because all of us need repentance if we're going to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. Parts of us are going to have to fall away. So even though the words that Luke puts at the very beginning of the book foretell exactly how the book will end, you don't have quite have the tools to understand what he means until you finish the book. What that does is it gives us the opportunity to consider how the philosophy of the book is different from what we had when we came in. It shows that Jesus is bringing in a different kind of kingdom from what we expected. All kinds of people were totally ready to see revenge against whoever they hated most and to see themselves get elevated when the Messiah comes. But instead, this newborn Messiah brought in one which insists on forgiving others. And that was actually the whole point. Just like Isaiah said, the sins of Israel were being forgiven. And that meant that the whole world was being set right. But if anyone was going to access that forgiveness, they would have have to forgive others. Everyone else wanted a kingdom that oppressed others in revenge for what they did to them. But if Jesus' kingdom was based on revenge, nothing would have changed. It would have just been one more rotten kingdom and a whole line of kingdoms that only made things worse. Every other kingdom would take an eye for an eye. But if the cycle was going to stop, someone would have to lose their eye and not take someone else's. Someone would have to suffer and not cause suffering. So now, with the gift of hindsight, we look back at the way we read these predictions at the beginning and realize that the kingdom wasn't what we expected. We expected revenge. Instead, we were tasked with suffering. We expected glory. Instead, we duty. But there's one thing that Luke makes absolutely clear from the very beginning. Something you don't have to have already read the book to understand. In this amazing, joyful story about two very old people who waited all their lives for the Messiah to come and finally get to see the salvation of their people, there's a very clear, dark note that's present. Simeon says that his sword will pierce through Mary's own soul. Of course, we know that Mary was present when she saw her sons crucified on the cross, when she had to experience the grief of a mother watching her son die from torture. We can see that dark note and the painful waiting of Simeon and Anna, and all those who were patiently waiting for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. And of course, this is all foreshadowing for the one that will suffer the most in all this, the child himself. From the outset, we know that this is a different kind of kingdom than the other ones. It's not one that's born from people gallantly charging into battle or from making other people suffer so you don't have to. It's not one that's born from national pride or the spirit of the age. If the previous passage about that child in the manger being in charge and not Caesar on his throne hasn't convinced you yet, these worldly motivators are not the kind of things that motivate this newborn child's kingdom. Instead, this will be a kingdom born out of suffering first for those patiently waiting, like Simeon and Anna, and then for Mary, who suffered in childbirth and then had to watch her son die, and then for Jesus, who who bore the suffering of the entire world on his shoulders, and then finally for us, since we participate in Christ's suffering as we go out into the world in love and sacrifice for our neighbor. As unexpected as this probably was for Israel, it shouldn't have been. God had said from the beginning of exile, that Israel's duty was to bear the suffering and sins of the world so that one day God would bring the whole world back to the way it was supposed to be, and everyone would flock to Jerusalem to worship God in harmony. But that was too hard for them, and they gave up on it pretty quickly. So they threw, they threw that violent, suffering and violence back at the world, only making things worse. They fought fire with fire. So instead, Jesus fulfilled that role bearing the sins and suffering and violence of the world, but turning the other cheek so that the whole world would be healed. And now that kingdom, which was created through the self-sacrificial suffering of Jesus, is the church. And we still are called to do the same kinds of things. We are the new Israel, and together with Jesus, we're meant to bear the suffering of the world. When we see people suffering, we hear their stories, we love them, and we cry with them. When we see the poor and the sick, we help them out and bear their burdens. When we see outcasts, that means we become their friends and so become outcasts ourselves. Because that's what Jesus did and that's what we do. There's a reason that Christianity spread so rapidly in the ancient world. When pandemics came on entire cities, anyone who could afford it pieced out and ran for the country. But Christians came came into the city and cared for the sick. Christians were proud of being a religion for women and slaves, and so they bore the reproach that they did. They didn't grow because they grabbed for power, but because they bore witness to the same suffering with which God made the world for David's sins and died. The way that we suffer for Jesus is by suffering with Jesus. And the way we do it is by seeking out those who suffer and joining in with them. And somehow it's the experience of all kinds of Christian mystics all through the ages that when they suffer for Jesus, that Jesus is somehow miraculously present with them. Just like the faithful Jews in the fiery furnace, when they suffered, somehow it became clear that they weren't alone. Jesus, Emmanuel, was God with them. And He's with us when we bear each other's burdens. Let's pray. Lord, it doesn't feel natural for us to bear each other's burdens but you came in flesh and showed us what genuine humanity looks like. Help us to bear the example of your son, so we would joyfully bear witness to a different kind of kingdom and sacrifice and love. Amen.